Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today, that guest is Grace Lee. Welcome, Grace. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Very excited to talk about today's movie. But before we get to that, I gotta know, what's your just general history with horror? So, you know, I had to think about this. I don't watch a lot of horror movies, even though I love horror movies. And I've traced that back to being a young child where the first horror movie I ever saw was The Exorcist (laughs) 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 with my my mother. And uh, I was like, I think in fourth grade. Wow. And this was in the 80s. This is when VCRs and renting VCRs was really cool and a new thing. And for whatever reason, she wanted to watch this movie with me. (laughs) So we watched the whole movie. And, you know, typically a parent would be like, well, you know, don't be scared. It's just a movie. It's just a movie. No, not my mom. I was told, you know, this happens, actually. You know, people actually get possessed. So, you know, you might want to, you know, figure out what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that that kind of subgenre in particular really lends itself to being like, no, it's the real deal. And you're like, oh, no. Right? It's this sort of disciplinary tool. It's just like, if you don't eat your peas and go to bed on time, you're going to get possessed and look at what's Pazuzu is coming for you. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So that was my first experience with horror. And as much as I love horror movies, I don't watch a ton of them, but I do love them. I love being scared. And uh, yeah, but that was my first uh, experience with it. Do you have a favorite subgenre within horror like that? You're just like, Oh, I love uh, vampires or witches or zombies. Oh, I love vampire and zombie movies. Love it. And I know this is not a popular opinion and I don't, don't know that these qualify as horror movies, but I love all the resident evil movies, which is probably why I like (laughs) this movie. I don't know why, but something about the way that they are done and shot, and I, I think it's it's just kind of cool enough that that I can be scared but not be too scared. <laughs> uh, and you're just a general fan of Resident Evil, right? Oh, I love it. You know, I only played the one game, Resident Evil 4, and then I got totally obsessed with all the Resident Evil movies, even though they're not great. <laughs> but I just love them. I don't know why. They're fun. They're fun. They're fun. I watched them with a friend pretty recently, actually, for the first time. And, uh, you know, we had fun goofing with them. Uh, Resident Evil, the second one, I loved. It's just so absurd with the uh, nemesis, like, join, like switching sides. Mm-hmm. Being like, no, I'm a good guy now. Right. The guy has comically tiny glasses, the villain. <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then they tr- do try to integrate some of the video game characters as they yeah. go. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's its own thing. <laughs> but that is linked to today's movie yeah. because they are both directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. He also directed the 1995 Mortal Kombat movie, which uh, well known for the incredible theme song. So, I mean, like him or not, the guys had incredible success. That's right. Was there a Crystal Method song on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there sure was. <laughs> okay. Is that the one where the guy is yelling, Mortal Kombat? Oh, yeah. Okay. Gotta launch into that. Uh, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, Mortal Kombat was a big success when, when it came out. It made $122 million on a $20 million budget. And so studios were throwing options at him. They wanted him to do Mortal Kombat Annihilation, the sequel. Uh, They wanted him to do X-Men, actually, that first X-Men movie. But he was like, I'm determined to do an R-rated horror movie. I want to really explore the darkness after being stuck with these uh, the PG-13 of Mortal Kombat. And so Paramount sent him the script for Event Horizon, originally pitched as a haunted house in space, which that's a fun concept. They were going to be tentacly aliens, though, defending their planet slash dimension, And Anderson was like, this is too dense. I don't want to do something with actual aliens. Uh, And so he said, I'll do this, but I'm going to give it my own rewrite. And the movies that he specifically calls out as drawing from, and I think it's pretty visible in the movie as well, is uh, The Haunting and The Shining, both of which get specific homages as well. The Shining has the blood flood that mm-hmm. happens mm-hmm. and uh the haunting with the bang at the end of the corridor and i think that it says a lot about why this movie works for me at least uh in that he's very deliberately going back and being like what are some of the greats what are some of the shoulders of giants that i can kind of lift from <laughs> and use to my advantage and i think he does a great job with that in this movie yeah no i think that you know when i was going through and and preparing for today 
saw a lot of criticisms that he was kind of maybe using some old tropes and things from old horror movies. But uh, to your point, I think that that actually really works. I think that, you know, the whole, and we'll get through it, but like, you know, the whole splitting up and let's go investigate separately and let's, <laughs> you know, go into Rookie the Rookie mistake. Exactly. <laughs> or it, this person tells me to leave, but instead I'll just stay and, and mm-hmm. try to figure out how I can fix the situation. It's like, no, you should go. But you know, I think those all work. And I think it works in the spaceship. And yeah, we'll go through that stuff. But I think it actually really works. Definitely. There's plenty of the Nostromo from Alien in 2001, uh, that ship lending inspiration for the interior sets as well. And they actually did build this spaceship set. So he was, I, was, I listened to the commentary as well. And he was like, yeah, we made sure that we had a couple long steady cam shots going up and down the stairs to make sure people knew we actually put the work in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we spent good. some money, honey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was actually impressed about that, like watching it yesterday. <laughs> I was really impressed at how the sets held up. They look really substantial. You really feel like you're in an actual ship that this isn't CGI, that this was actually a built ship, and I think that that really worked. Definitely. And I think it also works in that he wanted the ship to be doing the haunting itself instead of aliens, and I think that that is such a great and distinct way of placing it outside of the usual trappings of of these horror movies, you know? We've seen aliens before, and we've even seen demons before, but for the, the demons to possess the ship? Never seen that before. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, with the the usual kind of haunted house thing, you know, people can talk themselves out of that. Well, houses aren't haunted. This isn't scary. <laughs> that doesn't exist. But, you know, with a spaceship. Who knows? You don't know where that spaceship's been. You don't know what's <laughs> in that spaceship. And it actually kind of can take you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also got a great cast. Richard T. Jones, Jacek Isaacs, Kathleen Quinlan, and Jolie Richardson are, are great support, but of course, uh, are stars. And what stars? Sam Neill and Larry the Fish Fishburne. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. We love them. Yes. Two icons at the top of their game. Just fantastic. Yes. I think, you know, I saw this movie after Jurassic Park, and the first time I saw Sam Neill ever was in Jurassic Park, and so I had this whole image of him oh he's this nice guy he's very sweet and <laughs> smart and you know that's that was my expectation going into this movie so it that was <laughs> that he really does cool. such a great job of capturing that too you know i think sam neil i really think is like one of the best horror protagonists he's done a lot of like the the john carpenter stuff you know he did in the mouth of madness which is fantastic as well and he does such a great job of just feeling like he starts out as a normal dude but he can really turn it on and be like oh that dude is so evil (laughs) (laughs) yes he can he's very good at that paul was also very complimentary about larry they called him fish and i was delighted to hear this as an affirmation that i have been right to be doing this all along and he specifically calls out the matrix revolutions as a, a performance of of fishes that he loves and i thought i was like wow what an interesting specific movie to call out as one that you like and i you know what i respect it revolutions is a lot of fun i think uh, larry is doing great in it so paul's right <laughs> <laughs> he is. Larry really centers the movie. He's a, mm-hmm. he, he very much carries it along. Yeah. And he said also, interestingly, on the on the commentary, that there was kind of a big clash of style, like acting style, between Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne, despite both of them obviously being fantastic actors. Sam apparently likes to warm up on camera, try a few things out, but Lawrence Fishburne has so much planning and intention going into the first take that it tends to be diminishing returns as the takes go on because he kind of just nails it the first time, mm. which means that he was specific, like he pointed it out. I don't know why he did this, but he was <laughs> like, look, it's all re- shot reverse shot here because we needed to like chop it up so that they could get the best performance from each of them and it was harder to have them just like stand on set and do it perfectly at the same time which i thought was interesting wow that is interesting well you can't tell you can't really tell yeah great editing job to make it work for sure yeah well i read actually the whole editing process was like pretty overwrought (laughs) that it was they were trying to beat titanic out before titanic got out they were going to be the big blockbuster of the summer (laughs) i'll I'll get to it in a sec but i do also just want to say 
before that that the spacesuits that they designed for them were so heavy that they couldn't sit in chairs because the chairs would break. And so they had to just build leaning posts all around the set for the actors to to have a place to relax. And yeah. so uh, I had nowhere else to, to put that weird factoid in besides this production design section. So there you go, audience. <laughs> <laughs> leaning posts. <laughs> leaning posts. I got to get me some of those around the office. <laughs> From green light to theater was 10 months to get into this timeline a bit, which is, that's crazy for any movie, but specifically, that's a very short amount of time for a detailed and intense sci-fi movie with, with these intense spaceships, sets being built and everything. And as you say, the reason that this happened is because the Titanic, which is itself a famously troubled shoot, especially when it came to effects, was racking up delays and costs like crazy. And it was initially supposed to come out in July, but it kept getting pushed. So Paramount was like, we need a hit, baby. Uh, <laughs> Robert Evans. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they turned to Event Horizon and they said, it's up to you. And they convinced Anderson to accept a six-week editing period instead of the DGA guaranteed 10 weeks. But this is an effects-heavy movie. And so that six weeks starts ticking at the end of first unit shooting, which is like all of the main cast being on set for all of the actual performances. But he still had to do a lot of work with the second unit team, which is getting more like coverage stuff. And so that took another two weeks. And so their actual post-production time was cut down to just a month instead of the 10 weeks that they're supposed to have guaranteed by the by the union. So he, he really took a hit on that. And it's incredible that the movie managed to come out in as <laughs> well-functioning a form as it does. Agreed. Agreed. I don't think you can really tell. And I don't think that there's any noticeable gap. You know, I think it, it, it actually is, is a pretty well-put-together movie. But that's my opinion. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. what I'm here. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's interesting because they, they rushed this po uh, post-production. The editing was a mess for the rough cut, specifically. It was too long, coming in at two hours and ten minutes initially. And the special effects weren't really finished. And the sound mix was all messed up. And just generally could have used another pass. And ultimately it would. But because this is what they saw... Test audiences uh, reacted very poorly to this movie. Plus, of course, the gore was pretty intense, and there was a lot more of it at the time. So the studio demanded that Anderson cut a whopping 40 minutes of the movie, which is, that's a third of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Anderson himself feels the correct answer is probably somewhere in the middle. He thinks that it needed another editing pass, but probably about 10 minutes of the gore and suspense should have got put back in. But unfortunately, that footage seems to be fairly lost to time. There was some footage including, like, lengthening the hallucinations, adding one where Justin appears to become Weir's wife, backstory for the relationship of Stark and Miller, more scenes explaining the gateway to hell, that kind of thing. So, a lot of exposition stuff that I don't think the movie is necessarily hurt by getting that trimmed out. Some of the, some of the like, actual effect stuff, you know, I think might have been fun to have back in there. No, I agree. I think that some of those characters' backgrounds could have been fleshed out a little bit more, mm. but I don't really think think it's necessary at the end of the day when it's kind of just eclipse they that yeah. movie is moving <laughs> yeah yeah you just want to go you don't want to know about 94 her, minutes yeah her no divorce her custody <laughs> battle this like whatever nobody wants to know yeah. that just keep it exactly <laughs> It finally released on August 15th, 1997, and it was a pretty big flop. It made $42 million internationally on its $60 million budget. People liked the atmosphere, but critics deemed it overly loud, flashy, and gratuitous, which I'm like, that's the movie. That's what this movie is. <laughs> like, it's succeeding on its own terms. Those terms just aren't what they wanted. <laughs> right. Threw him too many curveballs or something. <laughs> and so because that's the movie, when people who did connect with it, connected with it, the initial DVD release became a huge hit. The hit that they wanted it to be in theaters. And so the studio and Anderson were like, great, we can finally put together this director's cut, but the footage hadn't been stored right. And like I said, is mostly lost. There was supposedly a producer's tape of the rough cut that emerged in 2017, but nothing has happened with that since. And in 2021, Shout Factory, who's a boutique, they like restore film and, and put it out. 
And uh, they said, we did an exhaustive search for the film elements for the director's cut, but as you'll hear in his new 2021 interview, director Paul W.S. Anderson doesn't think his cut will materialize. Unfortunately, much of the footage is lost, and as he mentions, he'd need to shoot new footage. We moved the release date a few times because of some leads, but to our disappointment, they didn't pan out. We definitely tried our best. So, seems unlikely, but never say never. Could uh, materialize at some point. I heard that they are, or at least... Pre-pandemic, they were going to, or I read that they were going to do a TV show mm. on Paramount Plus or something. So I'm not opposed to that. No, I'm not either. So it might yeah. be pretty good. The continuing adventures of the SS Hell. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so to get into the actual plot. The score starts immediately thumping, and the starfield fades in, and the text is classic sci-fi sans serif. I'm just, like, immediately sucked in. I'm like, yeah, this is what I want. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So I I just have to, you know, preface this. When I went to see this movie in 1997, I thought it was a sci-fi movie. I had no idea (laughs) at all that this was going to be a horror movie. So this is where I'm coming from when I I start my experience. I'm like, okay, this is like a Star Wars thing. I don't know what's going on. It looks kind of cool. This space time traveling ship is coming back. Let's see what it's about. So yeah, movie's thumping. Yeah, they lure you in. Yeah, movie's thumping. (laughs) Credits are rolling. and (laughs) And we get this text, 2015, the first permanent colony established on the moon. Of course, we all remember it. Of course, years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful town, as established previously on this show. A lot of people from Funny Games in the in the Moon Colony. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 2032, commercial mining begins on Mars. And 2040, deep space research vessel Event Horizon launched to explore boundaries of the solar system. And in these three quick lines, they immediately get your imagination and a little bit of fear working, you know? Exploring the boundaries of the solar system is by design seeking out the unknown, and that could mean anything, especially when they follow up by letting us know that it disappeared without a trace beyond Neptune, the worst space disaster in history. Right. In in written history or recorded history, and I'm like, what does yes. that even mean? <laughs> like, but okay. <laughs> like the non-recorded history yes. that was like a much worse disaster, <laughs> but nobody wrote it down. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> Those cavemen had crazy space right? accidents. Right? They're constantly crashing their spaceships, <laughs> dummies. <laughs> That's how they invented fire is they crash landed. And, and they're like, oh, that'll be like, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Let's use that, not that spaceship. <laughs> So we finally get to present day, 2047. The ship looks great out in this like little opening spin around it. They said the design for the event horizon was actually based on uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral. So there you go. There you go. And when we finally enter, the book that flies across the screen is Paul Anderson, A Life, which he said is his biography. He wanted to have a little fun CGI touch there, which I appreciate. (laughs) Right. And then a classic nude floating man covered from head to toe in wounds, screaming. Right. And so this should have been my first clue that this was going to be a horror movie but i'm just like okay <laughs> whatever Look, i've seen weirder stuff in sci-fi that's stayed straight sci-fi right so. right <laughs> and it seems like maybe this was a dream as we pull out to focus on our main character dr weir played by sam neill but there's no scene of him waking up so it also kind of feels like oh maybe this could have been a vision of things to come who knows He's in space. He's missing his wife, Claire. Cool shot as he walks out upside down. And again, the ship is like spinning around here. In the commentary, he says that they sent this back to get it right 24 to 25 times to the special effects team for like the model shots for this. And he said the guy who worked on it left the industry for a year when it came <laughs> when he was done because he was like i cannot do this anymore and he literally had to take like a little uh, hiatus to oh. recuperate oh he was from, event, from horizon. event horizon he was event horizon yes. from his experience <laughs> <laughs> he's like wait till you see what they showed <laughs> me wait till you see, wait till you see <laughs> what they make you do 25 times <laughs> Weir is boarding the USAC ship, the Lewis and Clark, a search and rescue vehicle on a top secret mission, and the crew is pissed about having to go out to Neptune with no R&R time. Mm -hmm. Fun little crew, though, led by, uh, like I said, Larry the Fish, Captain Miller, and they all hustle to prepare for the grav tank. A little taste of humor as well, which I appreciate. This claustrophobia bit, really, it makes me laugh, where, like, you expect them to be, like, all bluster and be like, no, I'm not claustrophobic, and he's like, yeah, I'm really scared. Right. (laughs) 
What I like, well, maybe you're going to get to that. Like, I like the part where they get out of it and it's like, okay, 52 days later. I'm like, really? I mean, like for a month <laughs> and a half? Like, I can get like if it was like five years, but like, you can't just take it for a month and a half. <laughs> Not in space, but. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I am claustrophobic, and I would yeah. opt to be like, I'll just wait. <laughs> I'll hang out here for two months. Yeah, just you chill. Guys have fun in there. <laughs> yeah, hey, you can read so many books. Imagine right. all the books you could read in two yeah. months. Of right. just chilling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Some alone time. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Weir wakes up earlier than he's supposed to, though, or it seems like at least, emerging to hear a voice whispering to him, and he finds Claire sitting in the captain's chair, eyes closed and whispering about how she's so cold. But suddenly, she grabs him from behind and opens her eyes and says she's waiting, and her eyes are missing. They're just fleshy holes. It's gross. <laughs> I thought I thought that the effects could have been better there throughout the movie. I felt like the gouged eyes thing was just it could have been better. <laughs> CGI was in its infancy. Cut him, I cut him a little bit of slack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's not perfect. It's right. definitely not perfect. Right. It's really funny to me. At one point later on, there's like a bunch of CGI like just debris floating around like a a, a, a hallway, and in the commentary, he goes. That's all CGI. And I went, oh, no way, You're Paul. Like, Thanks, gosh. <laughs> I couldn't tell, dude. Right. No, oh, all right. <laughs> I really thought you guys were in space. God. <laughs> but yes, he screams and he awakens for real this time, choking on the fluid and dazed. Everyone is fun. You know, I like that they're all full of personality as they're all waking up here. Uh, but Captain Miller is all business, and he demands everyone meet him on the bridge as they approach Neptune. I, again, thought this was a funny line from the commentary where the hot and black line was apparently a bit of cheeky improv oh. <laughs> right to Anderson. <laughs> he really establishes himself as the, the comic relief early on, mm. and, and it's very welcome later on. In my opinion. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> and uh, we also see the birthday party for Peter's kid on, on, on video. That was the single day of shooting outside that they did, he said. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything else was, uh, was in the sets. And introductions fly, and Weir is like, I'm psyched, you let me tag along. But the captain makes sure he knows that they're not happy to be there. So basically, let's cut the shit and everyone get a move on, because this is very dangerous as well. Right. You know, I like, in rewatching it, I thought it was really, it establishes the non-Dr. Weir characters as this, like, elite strike force team because they're sitting there asking him, why are we here? So this is after 52 <laughs> days in stasis, flying across like the universe to go get some ship, and they're asking him, these people are just so good, they don't need to know what they're doing until <laughs> they need to know what they're doing. And I think that that whole conversation is unrealistic in real life, but it, it really, like I said, establishes them as like, they're just that damn good. <laughs> That's right. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is finally time for them to know. So Weir tells them the NSA intercepted a radio transmission from the event horizon, and they're here to rescue it. And the reason that it's worth risking this crew for the ship is because it's actually the culmination of a secret government project to achieve faster than light flight. You can't break the laws of relativity and actually send the ship faster than light, they say. And Weir says, aha, what you can do is warp space around the ship's engine, folding it so point A and point B exist at the same point, letting the ship pass through a hole that it builds and bypassing the rest. And I think this scene is really fun. They do a great job of showing how smart Weir is, who actually is the one who built the mechanism, because he's like, here's the layman's terms. And then he, first of all, is very passionate when he's talking about it. But also, it's still incomprehensible to everyone. Right. He's like, I'm going to explain this in layman's terms. And then he does it. And then, of course, the normal, no, in English. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And then he takes the pornographic poster off of the wall, which isn't really that pornographic. It's just some woman in a bikini. And then pokes a hole in one side, pokes a hole in the other side, and folds it together. And they're like, oh. I love it. <laughs> Look, my opinion, if you're talking about space and time travel and you don't poke a pencil through a piece of paper, you have truly messed up. It's, it's kind of required to explain space time travel. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And the, the ship vanished without a trace, but now it's back. And so they're here to see what's up. There was no life contact 
but one transmission that was clearly screaming, and after some filtering, a human voice as well saying, Liberate me, which translates to save me. That's right. Grim. <laughs> right, right. And this is, a, is, this is important later. So yeah. <laughs> you think this establishes like, oh, okay, we have to go in and rescue people. Like, this is, this is necessary. We can't leave. We have a mission here. So... It's a very important part of the movie. And they approach the event horizon. And again, it was funny to hear them talk about how CGI nature in particular was kind of a big ask at the time. And so this cloud formation that they built got used for the next five years on British movies, he said. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, so maybe they made some of their money back. <laughs> <laughs> Scraps. Like, Please. Right. Please buy our CGI clouds. <laughs> And so they, yeah, they dock and they scan the event horizon, the big main airlock labeled with an intimidating Roman numeral 13, the scariest <gasps> number. <laughs> <laughs> they should have turned around right there. That's just like that haunted house. You're like, why are all these headstones around here? And why is that old lady screaming at me? I should just leave. That's right. That's right. But they don't. Look, sometimes you got to just trust your gut. Yeah. They've been told they need to save the crew save them. that's right yeah well in. yeah you're right they're the good ones and yeah. this is why we're not on this strike force right because <laughs> i'd be like that's all right y'all go <laughs> <laughs> the scans are all over the place. They say mostly the systems are okay, but the life forms are all over the ship without distinct locations, though, as well as showing a deep freeze. So the captain says, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to do this manually, forcing the doctor to stay aboard the Lewis and Clark and help guide them, although he is pissed about this. He is pissed, yes. He remains pissed throughout. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of the, the beginning of the slow decline for Dr. Weir here. Right. Great rotating shot in the airlock, uh, and the ship itself is fantastic. It's extremely Geiger-esque, especially the meat grinder hallway yeah. that one intrepid rescuer walks through. Yeah. And the doors have these, like, jagged teeth. It's just very cool. It's very cool. I will say that the name that what was it they called it the umbilicus. <laughs> They're walking through. I'm like really, but yes, the the grat the the set was awesome. It, it really and that was not CGI, and so they yeah. they spent some coin on that for sure. Definitely, Medtech Peters finds some blood finally, missing a ton more on the wall though. And uh, when she yanks a disc of information out of the wall, she comes face to face with a hideously torn up corpsicle, eyes gouged, slashed to hell. This is the first like real scare, I'd say, because as you pointed out, the CGI of the of the eye sockets maybe leaves a little to be desired in the year 2022 mm -hmm. but this practical makeup on this guy still looks really it, good it really does it, it is disturbing it is unsettling and it really yes no it definitely creates this tension justin enters the gravity drive core scam <laughs> Part of what I love about these sci-fi movies is just that I get to say stuff like Justin enters the gravity drive core. I don't get that in a lot of these. <laughs> That's right. And, and and this is the part where they split up. So he, yes. he's walking into the most ominous area. And, and like the hallway, there's just these 20-foot spikes on the wall just jutting out. Why? I don't know. <laughs> It's, because it looks cool. It's cool. It's definitely <laughs> necessary for the gravity core to work. But there is the youngest member of the team going in there all by himself because they're all split up. And mm, baby bear. Baby, baby bear, bear goes in. Baby bear. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they're scanning. They're getting all kinds of weird readings from the heart of the ship. They built the this core actually on the set that they shoot James Bond on, which I thought was a fun little uh, information. Fun little piece of information. Yeah. Justin is blinded by a light as the contact breaks with the ship. And when it, the light fades, there's a weird portal, which he touches like a fool, getting getting stuck and then sucked in. I don't know why you should never touch anything right? you find like that. <laughs> This is what's so great about it. Like, people thought that this was corny, like, horror movie stuff, but it's great. You're just like, yes. don't go in there. Don't touch that. Don't. Don't. And then they do. And all yeah. hell breaks loose. 
Exactly. Yeah. That's how you get us on the couch being like, oh my God, what yeah, are you doing? Yeah. yeah, exactly. You get us, you get us engaged with it by having them make these decisions. Yeah. And yeah, the lifeline starts to pull like crazy. He gets sucked in completely. But when the line gets lodged, the portal unleashes like a huge magnetic burst of energy, this pulse that knocks everyone off balance. Cooper, the rescue tech, goes in to do just that, rescue him, and uh, he grabs a limp Justin from the portal while Stark and DJ try and regain control of the Lewis and Clark, which is a flame after the energy pulse. And I like that at least Cooper is finally like, what the hell is this crazy looking room? Right. <laughs> like finally someone is like, this is nuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. He's, he's the voice of reason throughout this. He's the, <laughs> the Lewis and Clark is pretty much done for. So the crew is going to have to get all aboard the event horizon, freshly gravitied, which is a funny little scene when the corpsicle that she mentions uh, shatters on the floor. I thought that was a nice little touch. Right. So Weir gets most of the other primary systems back online, but the radio is fried, so they're on their own. The oxygen converters are fried as well, so this smartly puts a time limit on things. They only have breathable air for 20 hours, they say, so no messing around really makes sure that things are moving. Mm -hmm. Justin is completely catatonic at this point, and Weir doesn't believe that Cooper saw the portal because the drive couldn't have been active, he said. It's locked behind three magnetic fields. Uh, but if it was active, then that was a black hole that Justin went through to wherever the event horizon has been. So Captain Miller quarantines the core. Peters is searching through the logs, but suddenly hallucinates her son trapped in a glass case, legs covered in gaping sores before being startled back to reality by DJ. Just a fun, nice little hallucination here to introduce this concept. You say, oh, here's a child with gaping leg wounds. Right, right. But it does, it, it lends to this eeriness. She's like in this, what looks like a, a morgue area. And it's just, she's trying to hack into the computer, figure out what the computer knows or the ship knows. And then you just see this like tented area that's lit and sort of Ooh, a scratching sound. And you're like, what the hell? And why would you go over there? But she does. And then she takes the <laughs> sheet off. And yes, there's her child with his legs mangled. You start to just wonder what the hell's going on. What the hell is going on? <laughs> what the on? hell's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and they were too. <laughs> yes, they, sh they certainly were. The gang takes a look at the final log entry that she pulled. Starts out seeming normal with the former Captain Killpack. Fantastic name. Killpack. <laughs> <a> spaceship <laughs> captain. He's like, well, we're off for Alpha Centauri. Wish us luck. Only for it to quickly become a distorted mess of pinks and blacks with the sounds of screams, which is not promising, to say the least. Right. <laughs> the core starts draining power from the rest of the ship, and Justin starts seizing and saying, the dark is coming. There's so much great stuff happening in this scene. First of all, great lines and great delivery. Weir is also doing a classic crawl through the vents which you gotta love that. And the vents are green this time, baby. Yes. Innovation that the Matrix was clearly paying attention to. <laughs> right. Ripped off. <laughs> While he's in there, though, he starts to hear the whispers from Claire again, and the lights go out. And again, it just looks incredible in there. And, you know, she shows up. She says, be with me forever. And then again, the eyes pop up. No eyes. Again, you know, the CGI is what it is, but... The concept is scary, at least. Right. <laughs> the idea of what's happening. Right. I mean, he's trapped in this, like, tiny enclosed space. You can't really detect where the exit is. And he, all of a sudden, is the lights start going out, going on, going out, pitch black. And then all of a sudden, there's his dead wife with no eyes. That's the last thing you want to see. That is the last damn thing you want to see. <laughs> <laughs> the oil at the bottom of the core ignites as a charred bod emerges in flames opening its eyes to stare at Captain Miller. Another hallucination, but it's all very real and vivid to them, despite Weir's reluctance to believe. Smitty believes, though. This ship is fucked, he says. <laughs> you need a Smitty. I'd yeah, be that Smitty. Smitty. I'd be there like, guys, go. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he, he's looking, he's spoiling for a fight, too, because Weir is like, you're crazy, there's nothing happening, and he lunges at Weir, and Stark has been puzzling over these readings, and her only theory is, much as Miller is loath to hear it, is the ship brought back a life force with it from wherever it went, 
And now that life force is reacting to them with hostility with the hallucinations, which will continue to grow in strength. And it's really funny to me that, like, later on you're like, oh, yeah, she actually nailed it in the first try. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How did she know? <laughs> That's why she's on the strike force. That's she's right. She's great. She didn't need to know until she knows. <laughs> yeah, and now she knows everything. <laughs> and now they do, too. <laughs> yes. Peters is wandering around and hears a huge banging from behind a very intense metal door. This is, like I said, kind of an homage to the haunting. And suddenly the lights above her explode. So she runs back to the others. They didn't hear anything. And they assume it was just another hallucination until their door dents and bangs too. And this is such a fun moment for me. This like confirmation because... So often, this is where I think they actually kind of play against a lot of those tropes in a good way, is um, often someone will come back and and they'll say, oh, this crazy stuff happened to me, and then they just get dismissed, and that's like the the status quo for another several, you know, maybe a whole act even still. Mm -hmm. But for this, they go through that so quick. They're like, oh, no, we don't believe you, and then bang, 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 suddenly they're all on board. Now it's more about acting reacting to the situation as opposed to just please why won't you believe me that this is even happening and i yeah. think that it really works to the movie's benefit i think so too because now they're all in and they all know that this is the thing that they have to fight against and they also don't totally understand what it is and that that is helpful in moving that tension forward definitely great fun dutch angles that pulse with the bangs as weir goes open the door in a robotically calm voice again more haunting uh, homages yeah and he he gets up and he walks to do it before getting stopped by Stark. Right, right. This is where you start to get some sense that there's something up with Weir. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you had some indication, but this guy is about to open the door to whatever's whatever bending the <laughs> metal steel doors to get in. So yeah, not 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 his best move. No. And uh, everyone is dealing with that. And while they're all distracted, Justin went into the airlock and uh, he's trying to kill himself because of what the dark inside showed him. (laughs) Very fun. But this is something I also really like. After he's already triggered the door, he suddenly becomes lucid, begging with them to open up and save him. And I'm sitting here like, do I think that the dark thing actually put him in there and then left him and that's actually him coming to his senses Or do I think that that is the dark just like messing with the rest of the crew and making them feel bad about it? And it's actually still there with him, forcing him to do this stuff. Interesting. Okay. Who knows? I kind of thought it was like the whole baby bear, mama bear thing that somehow that, you know, because that one character who was her name? uh, Peters. Peters. Yeah. Her character is this very smart, capable, very maternally motivated type of character, you know, obviously. What's haunting her, her real life, at least in the storyline, her real life, her child's not sick or hasn't been injured. But the thought of it is enough to, to really drive her to madness. And I, you know, because of that sort of storyline, her doing this thing with Baby Bear in the airlock, don't do it, don't do it. I thought, oh, mm, well, this broke through, broke through. Uh, and then, then he's like, no, I, I can't. Okay. I won't save me. Help me. And um, Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Who knows? Look. Yeah. That's that's the uh, the ambiguity that makes it so incredible. Right, folks. <laughs> right. Not poor editing. It's just <laughs> deliberate ambiguity. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the door does open up, though, and he's expelled out into space. But Captain Miller positions himself to shoot back in and grab Justin. Truly grim stuff here as his eyes bleed and the like blood shakes all over and like his veins explode. He's in bad shape. Very bad shape. But I love the lead up to this where they're in there. They're on the safe side of the airlock. They're telling Larry what's going, Larry fish, what's going on. And he is just making haste to get through space. Cause he's on the outside of the ship trying to repair it. And he is pulling himself, pulling himself through all the scaffolding to get there. And you're thinking, Oh God, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? What's going to happen? And he, Catches the kid right as he comes out the airlock and pushes him back in and is able to shut that airlock. But yeah, blood is just erupting all over from this kid. And you're like, "Eh, good try. (laughs) It's funny to me because they like, it looks like they're doing a 3D. It looks like when you watch a movie that was made in 3D (laughs) on like a disc. 
but it wasn't in 3D. And like the blood droplets just like come at the screen and you're like, whoa, what's happening? You're right. You're totally right. (laughs) Now, the rest of the crew is attending to Justin, but Weir is being called to the core and they only have four hours of air left. Miller demands some answers from Weir, who gives him bullshit. Nothing but bullshit. (laughs) So this is the part, and I know it's going to seem like I don't like this movie because I keep talking shit, but I love this movie. The part where, though, where they say, we have four hours left, and and then everything they do after that four hours is not (laughs) act like they have four hours left. Yeah. Because that is not that much time. And you're not having... You're not having side conversations like, what's your problem? Like, what is your problem? Exactly. What the fuck are you doing? Like, you're getting the fuck out of there. You have four yeah. hours, man. But Yeah, so he, yeah. like, tells tells his backstory, like, about the guy he left behind later. And right. he's like, you, you can't breathe, dude. Right. You're going to die soon. But, yeah, no, they're having these side conversations and they're. <laughs> they're getting coffee. They're doing their thing. Yeah. But it's good. Okay. So now we it know. It is good. It's yeah, going. It is good. Going. Weir finally reveals that they straight up do not know where the portal goes, and Miller stalks off, uh, getting hit with some hallucinations of someone begging him not to leave them behind, though. And this is a really cool moment where he, like, puts his head up against the ship, and he gets this this grim, grim vision. I've said grim so many times, but this is, so much of this movie is grim. <laughs> it, it really is. <laughs> it's just, like, a few frames, but I, I, like, stopped it and went frame by frame to take a look at it, and it's, like, we're all bloody and covered in barbed wire and then a bloody cooper and then someone impaled on a spike in the core it's serious biz and it's it's the kind of thing where you're like oh if this is what they like cut out you're like oh man i really want to see what they cut out now (laughs) it's a shame it's a shame it's a shame it's lost of time but he's scared reasonably so he says god help us and uh he gives us this this classic line i love this little monologue where he's like you ever see fire burn in zero gravity it's beautiful it's like liquid slides over everything uh and this leads to him explaining his hallucinations where he he gives the backstory of the voice with someone that he served with that had to be left behind as he burned bad times in that story (laughs) (laughs) yes everything is really coming into a sharp focus here what's going on uh, Weir is uh, possessed by the ship, or maybe it's unclear if he designed the ship to be possessed. I don't know, but uh, it's really coming into stark relief that this is a it's a bad scene. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because I think that there is an element of it feeling kind of Orpheus-like in terms of him like going into like wanting to go into hell to look at like look for his wife who's right. dead. Yeah, I think that there is an interesting element of it being like reckless self-destruction leading to him designing this ship uh, Mm -hmm. in this way. And, uh, well, he pays the price. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, DJ reveals that he made a mistake with the translation earlier when we told you it was very important. Folks, we weren't kidding. It was coming back. That's right. The Latin wasn't save me. It's liberate tutame, save yourself, ex in Ferris, from hell. hell. (laughs) That's that's where you want to save yourself from. That's a bad place to be. That would be the one place, yes. (laughs) Yeah. And DJ is like, hey, maybe this ship literally went to hell and brought back some crazy demon stuff. But they're interrupted by good news from Cooper, who says they'll be good to go in about 20 minutes. They'll have the, the Lewis and Clark ready to hold them again. Inside, they have finally filtered the video and uh, have discovered what can only be described as an orgy of violence. One guy literally, like, shows you his own eyes that he tore out of his head. Like a little kid who's, like, proud of something that they found outside. Like, look, my it, eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gross. It's totally disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it's very disturbing. Yes. And Weir says they can't leave. But Miller insists, saying he's going to vaporize the hell out of this event horizon. Fuck this ship, he says, and I'm with him. <laughs> we, we counted how many times fuck was said because we were trying to determine <laughs> whether this was PG-13 or R-rated. Mm. And so but there were more than one fuck. So, yeah, oh, it's very, he, they're going they're 
really letting loose with fuck. <laughs> At this point, it fucks, it fucks on parade. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. The bioscan goes nuts when he says this, and the power drains, and Weir, looking a little off-kilter, says, you can't leave, she won't let you, and he fades into the dark, saying he's home. <laughs> uh, and I, that's, a, that's a good thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Peters gets seduced by the core and hallucinations of her son that lead her to falling down a pit and dying in an explosion of blood. Right. <laughs> and Weir finds Peters and he's upset for like one second. And then he's quickly distracted again by the siren call of Claire. And he sees himself with her at home, and he apologizes to her for not being there. Suddenly it all clicks into place that he feels guilty about being so distracted by work that she uh, felt isolated and wound up killing herself. And uh, he watches her do just that. And he says, not again, which really makes you feel like my dude is getting uh, tortured and haunted by this with some regularity. <laughs> Yes. Not a good situation. Not, yes, right. And I and I do I do remember because I just you know I'm trying to piece this together the first time when I was watching it. I'm like, so did he make the ship to go find her, or was did she die because he was making the ship? I you know mm. who knows. It's, it's one in the same, in the perhaps. Right. Yeah. Right. And he cries about having been so alone. And she emerges to comfort him, saying, you're with me now. You'll never be alone. I have such wonderful things to show you. Mm-hmm. She's very Hellraiser as she opens her blank eyes and gouges out his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very fun. Especially for us to then get the reality of seeing him do it to himself. I think that's a fun little punch moment. Right. Like, oh, God, it's really just him doing this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's great. I love that. I love that whole idea that it's just, it's like you think that there's this other being, but really at the end of the day, it's you, you're torturing your, yourself, you're going insane. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's the demons of their past all coming back, uh, coming home to roost. Uh-huh. You know, not, I'm not mixing metaphors there at all. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Cooper is finally done. And Smith is stoked, but he sees Weir messing around on the Clark before running back to the event horizon. And Miller realizes that Weir put an explosive on board, and Smitty even finds it, but not with enough time to do anything. So he and the Lewis and Clark are destroyed in a huge explosion. And I love, love, love that he finds it and, like, opens it, and he's like, no, it's all for naught. You don't even get enough time to actually do anything about it. Um, yeah. Just a real kind of rug pull moment. That actor's reaction, just that that acceptance of like it's it's over, and and I think that's where we get maybe our fourth or fifth fuck, where he just says, "Oh," fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then kablooey, it's gone. Honestly, though, probably way better to just die in a quick explosion than to get tortured in hellship for I, all eternity. I would vote for that any day. <laughs> <laughs> Back on the SS hell. <laughs> Yeah, Cooper, meanwhile, is spinning out into space. He was magnetized to some debris, which is very fun as well. Mm-hmm. But he expels his air tank, and he launches himself back at the ship. Miller, meanwhile, uh, warns DJ about Weir, but Weir is right behind him, and dispatches DJ with ease, uh, vivisecting him and putting him on display, you know, grody as hell. This that is was really nasty. so gross. And I totally, that image stuck with me through the years from 1997 to today. I just remember that image and I'm like, what the fuck am I watching? I mean, I'm still in my head being like, is this a sci-fi movie or not? <laughs> but it was totally disgusting. Done to yeah, great effect. Yeah, it's nasty. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Miller finds Stark, and he starts to sneak her out before Weir does a classic villain spin in the chair. Very mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. And he, he pulls a Doc Brown, and he says, where we're going, we don't need eyes to see. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Very anti-eyes in this movie. Yeah, he really is. You cannot have your ball eyeballs in it all. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he also tells them, actually, Stark was right. The ship went to hell, and it's alive now. How about that? Fucking nailed it. <laughs> Weir sets the gateway to open, which will take 10 minutes, and Stark attacks him, but is dispatched with ease. Weir holds Miller at gunpoint. It's like a, a nail gun, though. They don't have guns, and they were very specific in the commentary about being like, 
it doesn't make sense for them to have real guns on a spaceship. So we had to put something in that would actually make sense for him to shoot. Ah. Uh, that's why it's a nail gun. So there ah. you go. Okay. And there's some more f- fun, sassy banter betwixt them <laughs> as oh, they really? stand there. Uh, oh, I mean, uh, oh, oh, uh, Weir and Miller. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes. there's there's plenty of fun banter in the uh, commentary, although it's funny because I don't know what I was expecting Paul W.S. Anderson to sound like, yeah. but a like, middle-aged British guy wasn't it. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. For some reason, I have this whole, I, I think it's because there was like a West. Anderson and a Paul, mm. and, like I just I thought he was the American director. I don't know. <laughs> not the case. Not the case. He is a middle aged British man, and uh, it was quite the uh, dissonance as I was listening to him talk oh. about these movies to be like, oh yeah, that's the guy who made Mortal Kombat and Resident Evil. <laughs> Everybody's pr- all like, prim right. and proper British guy. <laughs> I like when President Wesker d- betrays everybody. <laughs> Well, it was a great turnabout. Okay, so Joe's going to listen to this. He'd be like, your accent sucks! I don't care. Joe. Joe. All right, <laughs> we're talking to you. All right, okay, <laughs> Yeah, so Cooper, finally, the air, he, he shoots at the window. He slams into it, uh, which distracts Weir, who fires the nail, or the, yeah, the nail gun at him, which smashes the window and causes decompression. Weir gets sucked out. But not only does Miller make it to the door, he even gets some nice little redemption by not leaving Stark behind. Mm -hmm. They feel like they don't have to worry about Weir anymore, and the forward airlock opens to let Cooper in, but the gateway is still going to open. So Miller says, okay, let's blow this popsicle stand. I'm going to go manually arm the emergency separation explosives in the hallway. You guys go set up the stasis. Mm -hmm. Now, Cooper notices that the pods are filling with blood. And this is, we finally get our big shining blood flood. Right. Because this shatters and explodes. There's so much blood in this. (laughs) And it was so funny. Like, you're watching, you're like, that's so much blood. And then in the commentary, he goes, yeah, this was actually pretty dangerous because of the volume of blood that we used here. We just really didn't know how else to convey a river of blood other than with a river of blood. (laughs) How can you do it? Impossible. (laughs) Miller is successful, but he's pursued by his hallucination, seemingly made flesh into the core room, which this dude looks rad as hell, ablaze, very (laughs) cool. uh, And the whole room looks very cool, all lit up on fire. Yeah. Very hellish as well. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It does go back to that sort of hellraiser with all the spikes and just very metal and just. Yeah, fire and all that. Definitely. Is very reminiscent of that. And Miller confronts the hallucination, which possibly more worryingly turns into Weir. <laughs> I don't know which is better for it to be the guy from his past or Weir who they just launched into space. Right. Both bad. Rocking yeah. a hard place. We're really. looking hella buff, really like <laughs> he's just gonna knock your ass out. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, he sure and is. And scratched the fuck. I mean, he's totally scratched up. He's on fire. Uh, he's pissed and, and he's pumped. <laughs> yeah, he phew, he sure is. And he mocks Miller saying, I told you she won't let us leave. Hell is only a word. The reality is much worse. Now let me show you. <laughs> Classic villain stuff. It's really fun. I love Sam getting to just go off like this. Yeah. And uh, he forces uh, Miller to stare into the portal and he sees his crew being tortured and then he attacks Weir in a rage. But Weir, like you said, just kind of laughs it off and beats him back saying they're all coming with him. The hell visions hit Miller with full force as the portal opens, but he reaches for the detonator and he manages to blow the hallway, sacrificing himself to destroy the portal and let Stark and Cooper escape the event horizon, or at least the back half in the front half of it. The back half of the event horizon explodes. Very, very satisfying uh, little explosion here. And then we get our, our little outro. 72 days later, there's finally contact with a rescue squad. They board and, and see the three survivors Justin, Stark, and Cooper. Wow, they made it. But then, of course, the trauma will never leave them as she has a vision of the rescue team being Weir. One last jump for the road. So see, to me, and I was talking to our friend Joe about this, who hates her bad accents. I was talking to Joe about this last night. To me, that closing was like they didn't actually escape the event horizon. Because that, 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 door closing at the end so these rescue squads uh, people come in she's 
you know, trying to get her wits about her after being in stasis for 72 days. The face shield flips up on one of the rescue workers, and it's weird. And then she screams and freaks out, but then it seems like she's having a nightmare. And they're like, no, 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 you're fine. And then when those doors close, I'm like, oh, Mm. oh, that ship is really going to take him to hell no matter what. So, you know, I, 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 I... Probably the prevailing thought is that no, it's just a nightmare, and yes, they are going to be traumatized forever. And but what I was left with is no, they're going to hell. Like you can't. He said you can't ever leave, and you're not going to, and you're going to hell right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, look, the way that I took it was just um, I was like, oh, that's just like a, a little fun way to like close out the movie. But I'm way more on board for them just being like screwed and stuck in hellship yeah. forever. Yeah. I think that's a way more fun ending. Uh, unfortunate <laughs> for those characters but way more fun. Sorry. Good for the audience, right? <laughs> yes. And also a good segue into whatever TV show Paramount Plus may or may not be making. Show, show, true. <laughs> the continuing adventures of the SS Hell. Right. I'm, I'm saying that's going to be the title. You heard oh, it here first, folks. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Yeah, or the credits roll over uh, uh, Prodigy, the, the some very 90s techno. <laughs> it's funny. They actually moved on the rights to that Prodigy song three weeks before the album hit number one in the U.S. charts. So they actually got it pretty cheap. <laughs> in the commentary, he was like, that was Prodigy. We were really excited to work with them. Oh, <laughs> I was man. like, oh, okay. 90s techno is the best. <laughs> <laughs> Prodigy crystal method. It is delightful. (laughs) Dust Brothers, of course. Yeah. They have our Fight Club score as well. Oh, so good. We've now reached the point of the episode, Grace, where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, Uh but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. Thank you. And I'm going to let you start. All right. This is the best horror movie ever made because it doesn't try to be anything other than a horror movie and it does it in a totally different venue in a way that stretches your imagination about what really scares you and it is the unknown and the uncontrollable and that really works in a space setting because that is a setting that none of us really know about and can control so unlike i said you know as i said before unlike a haunted house where you can say well this is a house that i could just leave (laughs) And I could just go away and not be here. Yeah. You are stuck in space. And you don't actually know where the spaceship has been. I mean, there's a lot of suspense. There's a lot of tension. There's mystery. And there's things that can't be explained because they just simply can't be explained. I think the effects hold up really well over time. I think some of the CGI, not so much. The effects hold up over time. The acting's great. And they, they're they really committed to it. So I think it is the hashtag best horror movie of all time. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it just totally accomplishes what it sets out to do, in my opinion. It is so fun. It it never gets dragged down in taking itself overly seriously, but at the same time, it is taking itself seriously. It's trying to be a good movie, and I think that they absolutely accomplish that in dozens of categories for people who are like the cgi hasn't held up perfectly who cares it's like five frames of this movie (laughs) right there's so much uh great effects in it the set design is absolutely incredible you know there is literally hellraiser 4 is hellraiser in space and it sucks compared to this movie this is a better hellraiser in space than hellraiser in space is I mean, Sam Neill, ultimate horror protagonist, gets to flip it on its head and become an antagonist here. Larry the Fish, we love him. We, him. we want him in all the movies, and all we'll take him in, in this horror film for sure. Mm-hmm. And the supporting cast does a great job of filling in the rest of the world in a way that feels lived in, you know? They don't feel like stock characters. They feel like they're all meant to be there. And I think they do a great job of stopping the movie from feeling like cardboard. (laughs) You know, it it, it feels uh, well lived in. It feels like this is a world. And I think that that's why a a TV show could be made of it. I think that whatever is going on on this ship draws you in and you want to explore it. And that's because of the rest of what's going on. It's not, if it was just spooky ship that's not necessarily enough but because the world is great as well i think that that uh, is is really important plus like you said there's no escape in in the movie poltergeist they're like 
if we just need to get to the motel down the road. <laughs> There's no motel down the road when you're in space. Right. No one can hear you scream. Yeah. But so by default, it's already scary just being out there. And 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 all of those things combine, uh, plus of course the effects, uh, make this the best horror movie ever made. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> unanimous grace i want to thank you so much for coming on the show this was so much fun please tell the people if there's anything that you would like to promote if not just something that you are enjoying lately i would just love to promote this show it's awesome you are amazing this was amazing <laughs> and you. so much fun thank you for letting me do this for this movie that i is very near and dear to my heart so it's uh it's been great i love this movie too i was thrilled to get to finally talk about it and so truly my pleasure as far as my plugs the you can find me uh at on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, but I'm mostly on Twitter, so if you really want to find me, that's where you should go. But uh, you can also find me on Patreon if you're really enjoying the show. There are all kinds of bonus episodes on there for just a couple bucks a month, including ones like we talk about uh, Resident Evil 2, the video game, the original and the update. We talked about both of them, so that was a lot of fun. And we talk about stuff like Freaky Friday 2003, and uh, we just actually talked about the video game Control as well. I literally recorded that earlier today, so, uh, so that's truly a scoop. <laughs> <laughs> You heard it here first. That's right. So, yeah, uh, if you're enjoying the show, check that out. You'll get even more of it. Other than that, uh, rate and review if you're enjoying it because it helps. All right, everyone. Bye. Bye.